be in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. I would encourage you to turn. I'm in the NASB today. Um, would you stand as I read? 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning at verse 6. And hear the word of the living God. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come and we thank you for the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of your truth, the beauty of you. We thank you for the wonder of song and the gift that it is to bring wonderful truth and translate it into our hearts to stir us. As we come to your word, we pray, O Lord, that you would grant eyes to see ears to hear, hearts that have been softened by your Spirit's touch. And Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away but your word will never pass away. So even today, O God, would you speak. God of glory, maker of the heavens and the earth, and each of us, would you speak. Father in heaven, speak. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. May be seated. We come to a very sober and sobering passage of Scripture. As we've already kind of laid out, as we've walked through Second Timothy, that the Apostle Paul is at the end of his life, that this is the Last letter he writes, he is imprisoned in a Roman jail, a Roman dungeon, and this is the, the last leg of the journey. He's made trips around the Mediterranean Sea, he's made at least one trip to Rome before this current imprisonment, and his concern is to hand it off. Our passage begins with the connection for. He has literally just been telling in verse 5 Timothy to fulfill his ministry, to be sober, to keep his head, to endure hardship and do the work of an evangelist for. The implication is I have done my bit, I have run my race, now you must run yours. There is a personal, individual acceptance that Timothy must 
bump up to. I say this from time to time as I have a copy of my ordination certificate in my office. And there are this list of names of men who were on the council that examined me, asked me questions and prayed over me. And there's, I, don't, I forgot how many there, it's maybe a dozen or so. Uh, and I think there's only two left. Many of them were pastors. Many of them had served as pastors over me or I had served under them. And, and I always say with, with each passing, it feels like the baton in my hand grows a little bit heavier. That I go from being the, the new young guy to somehow being the old guy. Having to find those to hand the, the baton off to. For Paul, the distinction, the line is clear. He has done it. He's planted churches. He's gone on missionary journeys. He's raised up Timothy and Titus and Aristarchus and Epaphroditus and all of these men, that some that you know and some that you don't remember. And he has this moment of self-reflection as he considers his own life. He says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The pouring out of his life he likens to a sacrificial libation, a pouring out of sacrifice. It's a vivid image of what Paul tells the Romans in Romans chapter 12, that we are we're not to be conformed to the world, but we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds to present our bodies as living sacrifices. He says to the Philippians that he is If I am to be poured out in Philippians chapter 2, I believe it's verse 17. If I'm going to be poured out as a drink offering for your faith. He's already shared earlier in 2 Timothy chapter 2 that he he, he suffers everything for the sake of the elect. So that they might also participate and partake in salvation. He sees his days as a visible demonstration of. Of living as a sacrifice. Living on borrowed time. And some of you, you are more aware of this than others. That every day is a gift, but every day is a reminder. Every day is a gift because you woke up. I, when my grandfather was getting older, I... I'd go to, go to see him, and I mean, I saw him before he was, I mean, he was always old, I guess, when I knew him. But anyways, um, I never knew him as, as a young man. Uh, but I would go see him, and he would say, I'd ask him how he was doing. You know, how's it going? He's like, I'm better than I ought to be. At least I'm not uh, in the ground or something. He, it, was, it was more clever than that. Um, but he had a, a stark real, realization that uh, at some point, uh, the clock counts up, and then at another point, the clock, clock starts counting down. Now, you can't presume on your days. No one, none of us are guaranteed the next moment. But every day is a gift, but it's also a reminder that there will be the last day. There will be the day of your death or the day of Jesus' return. And despite what, you know, Maybelline would have you say, like, you can't always stay young. And that day is unavoidable. And Paul sees his days as a drink offering to be surrendered to 
Christ's purpose, Christ's kingdom. And for him, it was a particular role as an apostle who received new revelation. He's writing 13 of our New Testament books. You're not that guy. But the call to live as a living sacrifice, that is for us who belong to Jesus. You, you, you're not able to store up your days for yourself. There, there is no U-Haul storage unit for the hours and the minutes of your life. They are being poured out. The question is, for whom? And to what end? Where are you spending your life? There are two great indicators for spiritual maturity and Christian discipleship. You look at your checkbook, which we don't have those anymore. Go look online. It's your banking thingamajigger app. And then you look at how you spend your time. Where do you spend your money? Where do you spend your time? Welcome to your gods. Paul says, I'm, a, I've, I'm already, I'm in the process. My life is being extinguished. And for him, it's visible. He's, he's already had one trial. He's gone. He's already been at his first appearing. He talks about this later in chapter 4. That everybody deserted him at his first defense in verse 16 of chapter 4. Everybody, he's already had that pre-trial trial. And he knows. He knows just by the, whatever was said there, we don't have a record of it. Whatever the tenor, the spirit of that trial, that he's going to die. And he's going to die here in Rome. It has been prophesied by prophets along the way, if you read the book of Acts. And it's been attested to him by the secular authorities there in Rome. You do not have such a gift, many of you. It doesn't feel like a gift, so let me maybe justify that. There is, and some of you do know this. Some of you have been at the brink with cancer or heart conditions or other illnesses or, or maybe even some other you know, other encounter where it seemed like you were almost at the point of death. And there's a clarity and a poignancy that that gives to you to remember that your life can be snuffed out like this. That there's some value to what the prophets, I mean, the, what the psalmist says that when, we, when he prays, when Moses prays in Psalm 90, teach us to number our days so that I would have a heart of wisdom. It's understanding the day, the day to come when you will have to meet your maker and the day of your death where this body finally gives out. I'm being poured out and the time of my departure has come. He is not at the gate at the airport looking up and saying my, it's my departure time of just leaving. He's using departure as a picture for death. My physical death is upon me. I'm being poured out as a drink offering. There's a clarity in that moment that's given to Paul 
that I wish for you. Not, a, not don't misunderstand. I don't wish that you're dead, right? That's not what I'm saying. But I want us to have that clarity of how do we spend our days. If the next few moments you're pouring them out, the same this afternoon and tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and the next month if you have it, next year, where is your life being poured out? And according to what desires are you pouring out your life to serve yourself? Are you pouring out your life to accrue a lot of money, a lot of fame, a lot of power? All of those are weak and timid gods that cannot justify you at the end. Will we be a people in our various areas, wherever the Lord has you, in your homes and in your businesses and in your neighborhoods? Would you be one who pours life as willingly and joyfully Poured out, not for your sake, but for the sake of the one who has bought you with a price. The apostle tells the first, first is this just the Corinthians, it's not the, the first Corinthians. He tells the Corinthians that you have been bought with a price. You are not your own. Therefore, honor God with your body. Honor God with your life. I'm already being poured out my life. It's, it's like a pitcher in the air. One of the best games when the kids are young, uh, my, I say like, like little, like Chapman, he's just, what, 14 months? As uh, I'll, you know, we're doing the bath and I'll have the big cup there and I'm, you know, I'm rinsing them off and I'll scoop the cup up, you know, as full as I can get it. And then I'll slowly just have this trickle come out. And just my favorite thing, I don't know why I love it so much, but just to see the kids try to grab it, you know, and they, they can't quite grab it. It just, their, their, their hand goes straight through the flow of water. Dear ones, this is your life. It's being poured out. And at some point, your days on this earth will be done. And your best attempts to grab the stream of water, your hand will just go right through. What is it being poured out for? For whom is it being poured out? Is it for yourself? Was it for Christ? Paul says, I'm poured out as a drink offering. It is a, this is a sacrificial act because of the greatness of the grace that he has experienced. And what that has looked like for Paul is verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. It's in these three, if you're a, if you're a grammar nerd, uh, these are three perfect tense verbs, meaning that there's a past beginning and a continuing significance. It's a past action with continued significance. So he's, I have fought the good fight. You think about all of Paul's controversies. You think about all of Paul's battles where he went up against the Judaizers and Galatia, and he went up against the super apostles in, in, in Corinth. He battled the Jewish authorities in Judea and in Damascus, where he had to be lowered down by, in a basket to escape their wrath. You think about his, his fighting the fight 
It's not just his moments of controversy. It's not just his moments of conflict, which are many. He even talks about fighting beasts in Ephesus, which is exactly where Timothy is ministering. But fighting the fight is an imagery that he has used with Timothy already. Both in 1 Timothy and here, he is, in 2 Timothy, he's saying, fight the good fight, wage the good warfare. That there's something about the Christian ministry that is inherently warfare. And if that's true of the Christian ministry, it's true of the Christian life. That we are a people summoned to war. The implements of our warfare are not swords or machine guns, helicopters or submarines, which was tragic about that one. The weapons of our warfare are prayer and the word of God. And by them, we wage war. We wage war against the powers and the principalities, the cosmic powers in the heavenly places. We wage war to tear down strongholds, anything that stands in the way of the knowledge of God. We wage war in prayer, knowing that the victory is not ours. It belongs to the Lord. We must fight the good fight, both in ministry and as followers of Christ. Literally, the, it's just fun, all right? The word is agonize. I agonize over the agony. Agonize over the agony. It's a play on words that you have to fight the good fight and to live the Christian life and to do the Christian work requires a denial of self, taking up the cross of Christ. That's Christianity 101. If that's where Christ begins, to continue in Christ's service will require greater cost to you and to me. I fought the good fight, just as he's told Timothy to do. And we know from history that Timothy does. I finished the course, sort of a navigational maybe picture of a, of a ship sailing going from A to B. And he's saying, I've been faithful along the way. I've finished the course. This, this actually is a similar language that Paul used with the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. In a, in a really kind of epic verse in verse 24 of Acts chapter 20, he says, and remember, he's, he's stopped at Miletus. He's on his way back to Jerusalem. He stopped in Miletus because he wants to visit with the Ephesian elders, but he doesn't want to get bogged down. Every pastor knows, right? He doesn't want to get stuck talking to everybody in Ephesus. He wants to talk to the leaders in Ephesus. And he says, I do not count my life. I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Do you see it, the either or? I do not consider my life as dear to myself so that I may finish the course. If, if we are going to consider ourselves, I'm going to spend my days for myself. 
you cannot finish the course that the Lord has for you. The path of Christ requires a daily denial. Or as the apostle says elsewhere, I die daily. A daily denial of self, a a dying to selfishness, a dying to vain glory, and to being the center of the story. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. I've done the ministry. I've fought the fight. I've been faithful along the way. And I've kept the faith. It's significant that this is the word faith with the definite particle. Par- not particle, but yeah, particle. It's the, it's the faith. Paul's, Paul's not saying that I have kept subjective faith. He's not saying that I've, I've kept my warm and fuzzies about Jesus, which is, pro- is probably true. But he's saying I have retained the faith. And when Scripture uses... The faith, it's, require, it's, it's talking about that which ought to be believed. That the Christian faith is subjective. You have to decide to follow Jesus. You have to lean upon the truths that, that are revealed to you in Scripture. The faith has to be yours. But there's also a content that you must believe. You must believe the gospel. You must believe that Jesus is who he is and that he's done what he's done. You must believe that he rose from the dead. You must believe that he's going to come back. There is a content, the faith. And it's significant that Paul is saying, "I, I kept the faith because there are people all around Timothy that have not and are not. We've already talked about those who, are, who have taken the word of God and twisted it and used it as a, as a tool for their own agenda. Next week, or not, two weeks from now, we'll, Lord willing, we'll talk about Demas who, in love with the present world, has deserted Paul. That there are many who have not kept the faith. Who take the name of Jesus... And they act like the definition, I mean, the web, you know, the the dictionary is a whiteboard. And so they throw Jesus on the dictionary whiteboard. They wipe away all of the definitions supplied in scripture. And they say, Jesus is really like this. And then they're able to say, my Jesus would never do that. My Jesus is like this. Because they've taken an, an idol of their own crafting and they've stuck it labeled it Jesus that's not keeping the faith keeping the faith is not maintaining a worship service there are whole churches and whole slivers of the of Chris of the of the Christian denominations I guess uh, that have not kept the faith even though they continue to do their worshipy services they go through their liturgies and wear their clothes their vestments their hats they have not kept the faith They have departed from it. The gospel is Jesus, but it is content about Christ as well. The old, the Greek word for this is kerygma. That there is a message that has to be proclaimed. That if the gospel is going to be shared, there is a message that has to be said. 
When Paul talks about the gospel in 1, Timothy, I mean, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he, he lays out that Jesus Christ was crucified. He died according to the scriptures. He was raised according to the scriptures. And he appeared to others. The gospel at a very minimum is the person of Christ. Truly God and truly man. And the work of Christ, both in his obedience, where he did not sin in his life. He was perfectly obedient to his Father and the revealed will of God. And in his, that's called his active obedience. And then in his passive obedience, where he suffered a humiliating yet substitutionary death on the cross. And he truly died. He was truly buried. And he truly raised. He truly ascended to the right hand of God the Father. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Paul has not, as some charge him, has not corrupted the message of Jesus. He has been the greatest proponent and extender of the gospel of Christ. And here is the Christian ministry fighting the good fight, finishing the course, keeping the faith. This ought to be in your area, your sphere where the Lord has planted you. You must fight the good fight. Wage the warfare. Wage the warfare in your soul. Keep watch over your own heart. Keep watch over your desires. Keep watch over the idols that can still pop up within us. Keep watch over your loves. Keep watch over what you're spending your time and your money on. Keep watch about what you're saying and what you're seeing. Keep watch. Keep watch over your home. Fathers, mothers, keep watch over your home. What what is coming into your your family? You, you, You must take a post of warfare. Because the adversary's assaults do not stop at this door. They're certainly upon this. It's a metaphorical door. Upon the door of the church, but it's certainly upon the family. Certainly upon marriages. Keep watch over your home. Keep watch to keep in the word and keep near Christ. Keep watch for roots of bitterness in your own heart and in the hearts of your, of your family and of your marriage and of your children. Bitternesses and resentments that can crop up. Keep watch. And so much of that, and this is the sneaky thing about spiritual warfare for the Christian. So much of that is mundane. That spiritual, this is one of the greatest lessons I've learned recently within the last few years. That spiritual warfare is those, there are those moments of clarity and of conflict, of experiencing the darkness and the oppressive presence of demonic forces. But it also shows up at your dinner table. Shows up on your phone. Shows up on your TV. Shows up in your life. Because if there's anything that Satan is, he's a subtle, smooth liar. You must fight the fight. Keep the course. Stay faithful. Stay faithful where the Lord has you. And keep the faith. Despite what is growing to be overwhelming odds in our culture. And here's why. 
Why? Why pour out your life this way? Why not try to store up your days and enjoy them the best you can? Why not live according to the pleasures of this life? Why not live according to what they tell us is valuable and good and true and beautiful? Why not? Why don't just get along? Go along to get along. Verse 8, Paul tells Timothy, In the future, there is laid up for me. It means he doesn't have it yet. But he has a hopeful, sure assurance and promise that it belongs to him. There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Now, the New Testament talks about several different types of crowns, crowns of glory, crown of life. I'm not going to get into opening all of this up, but uh, the crown of righteousness, one way to say that I think would be the, the crown that is righteousness. That this righteousness is the full fruit, the realized fruit of your righteous position before God in Christ. That today... You are justified, meaning that you are declared righteous before God, not based upon your effort, not based upon your goodness or moral ability. You are declared righteous, justified before God because of Christ, by grace, through faith, that you're crying out to Jesus, saying, there's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You are righteous before God today because of Jesus and what he has done for you. His his blood has removed your sins. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Though our sins were scarlet, he says, I will make them as white as snow. This is the powerful, effectual sacrifice of our Lord Jesus. But not only that, not only does he remove your sins as far as the east is from the west. But he says, I'm going to make you righteous in Christ. That he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. This crown of righteousness that Paul anticipates is one that he's already begun to experience. And that he's justified. That God is the one that is the just, he is just and the justifier. That this is the righteousness of God he talks about in Romans chapter 3. It's the crown of righteousness giving birth into the very presence of the Lord. And notice how he describes the Lord here, and the Lord is Jesus. The crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge. Don't overlook it. The connection between righteousness and the righteousness of Christ's judgment. Understand this. This is critical. That you are not made righteous in right standing with God, right relationship with God. By your effort, nor are you made righteous before God because God said, well, you know, sin really isn't that big of a deal. Let me lift up the area rug of heaven and get the, the, the room and we'll just sweep it under there. There's nothing to worry about. God is love and all that. 
But you cannot demand that God in his love would simply overlook our sin while abandoning his own holiness. You cannot request that God would deal with you not according to our iniquities, not according to our trespasses, and then, because in effect you're asking him, quit being holy. Quit being righteous. And so because of our love affair with sin, we ask God to become something other than God. Which, you know the answer. He's not going to be. So it is significant that the crown of righteousness is given to the one who is a a, a persecutor of the church. One who is a blasphemer of the name of Christ. One who sat idly by with clapping his hands while Stephen was stoned. He's not there on his own merits. And he's not there because of some loosey-goosey picture of the love of God. He's there because God demonstrates his love in this. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It is only in the transaction of the cross and the empty tomb that God is made just and the justifier of the ungodly. That he remains righteous. He has not abandoned his holiness. He has not abandoned his righteousness. And yet he, he justifies the ungodly, Paul says in Romans chapter 4. The only way that is possible is that if God has poured out the just penalty for our sins upon Christ and Christ alone. And Jesus has risen after taking the wrath of God, satisfying God's wrath in our place. The end of Romans chapter 4 says he was raised for our justification. This crown of righteousness is a realization that Jesus is righteous and holy. And bringing sinners turned saints into his kingdom. And dear ones, that's our only hope. Because that's all that's here. All that's here are those who have rebelled against God. Those who are guilty of cosmic treason. As R.C. Sproul said, those who are deserving, not just the wages of physical death, but we are deserving the wages of spiritual death. Death. Separation from God for eternity. We have earned we have earned that. And rather than God, rather than giving us that, God has given us his son. So that everyone who would call upon Christ will be saved. You'll be saved from the debt that would send you to hell. You'll be saved from the, your rebellion against God's kingdom. The only way that you will be welcomed into God's heaven is that when you meet that righteous judge, you're already righteous in him. Do you want, please understand what I'm saying. If you go there saying, God, look at all the cool stuff I did. Here's my list of stuff. Here's my list of do's. Look how great it is. Here's my list of don'ts. Look at all the stuff I didn't enjoy. Now let me in. The righteous judge will say, depart from me, I never knew you. But our plea upon that day, the day of our death or the day of Jesus' return, is Christ alone. 
Christ alone, his blood alone, his victory alone, his righteousness alone. Crown of righteous, which, righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. That day is talking about that end day day. The end of the days and the birth of the new day. But notice it's not just for Paul. Oh, such good news, right? Because Paul's like, we think about Paul as like the superhero standing on the pinnacle of the New Testament with the cape flowing in his breeze. Like he's just, how could I ever be like that guy? He says, it's not just to me, but it's also to all who have loved his appearing. The appearing here is the second coming of Jesus Christ. And by loving it, Paul has been longing for it. He said as much at the end of 1 Corinthians, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. This is the very close to the very end of the book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 22. Come, Lord, come. This must be our heartbeat, Christians. For the coming day of the Lord. Where the wrongs in this world are righted. When those who have raised their hand against Christ and his kingdom are finally put down. Where all of the undisclosed wickedness is brought to bear. For there's none that can escape his sight. And we, we are brought into the day when there's no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more sin. No more need for a son because the glory of God will be our son. We don't need a temple because the Lord himself will dwell amongst us in the new Jerusalem. We should long for that day to be present with Jesus. To finally see. To have all of the all of the stuff, all the brokenness and the baggage is done away with. Own sin that continues to pop up within us. Finally gone as we receive new bodies. To see the power of the resurrection of Jesus as you look across the marriage feast of, of the Lamb. And we see each other as we ought to be. Where it's so easy to see each other in the muck and in the mire. But one day, how long for that day? We will see Christ as he is. And we will be what we ought to be. Together in the new heavens in the new earth. And I pray that if today that's not your destination, that you today are here for whatever reason, and is here by appointment with God, that you would quit fooling yourself Seeking to trust yourself. Seeking to rank up your goodness or, or stack up your pleasures. 
to divert yourself away from the reality that your life is being poured out, come to your senses, dear one. Awaken from the drunken stupor of sin and come to Christ and live. Live, let the dawn of Christ dawn in your hearts. And that one day you and I, and all of us together, will be there. And you'll be able to say, look at what God did on this day where he brought you out of darkness into light. He is able and he will save pray Father would you grant so many things would you grant that we would love your appearing that we would consider our days that we might have a heart of wisdom We would understand that each day is a moment. Each moment is a moment where we can either live for ourselves or we can live for Christ. I pray, God, as of right now, if there's some who they do not love the idea of the appearing of Christ, they dread it. The fear of death clings to their soul. Or uncertainty darkens their hope. Lord, have mercy. Rescue the perishing. Rescue them, O oh God, from their rebellion. Rescue them from their sin. Help them to hear the hope the call of Jesus to repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. Lord, we lay our lives by your grace upon the altar as living sacrifices. Be honored in all things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.